Yeah, she'll teach you how to be artistically you. Not afraid to talk about what's taboo. So don't play small. Join the podcast with Nikki Collins. Autism Unmasked. Hello and welcome to today's podcast. And I am joined by the amazing Sarah Louise Sarah is a therapist and a social impact entrepreneur and she's just she's just wonderful so hello Sarah (laughs) (laughs) thanks (laughs) hi Nikki Sarah also runs a VA agency to help neurodivergent individuals get paired with equally neurodivergent VAs and I've worked with uh, with Sarah for a while now, and it's been absolutely seamless. So if you're looking for some help there, you know where to go. But there's your little plug for me, Sarah. You can pay me Thank later. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> What's your PayPal account? <laughs> so thank you for joining me it's really it is really good to have you here and we've got some amazing topics lined up today so yes we have do you want to have a do you want to just tell everyone a little bit about yourself like in your own words rather than just me saying how wonderful you are it's true well thanks (laughs) you did a good job but if if it's true you did a good job um so I'm Sarah and I'm based in West London I'm from the southwest originally uh, I am a therapist and coach uh, working exclusively uh, with neurodivergent clients. Um, and uh, yes, I have lots of other social impact projects, which actually all come from my skill set. I just collaborate with people in various areas, uh, tech, clothing, admin, etc., cetera, um, all to meet the needs of neurodivergent people. And I am autistic with ADHD. Fantastic. Was your diagnosis when you was a a young un or when no, you no I wish <laughs> well I wish I say that but then I think when I meet people who were diagnosed when they were young their diagnosis doesn't always mean a lot in old in you know when they get older because they've changed so much and it's manifesting differently but I was diagnosed at 38 with autism and I only found out in the pandemic that I'm ADHD um and the more that I've had support for my autism the more obvious it's been how much of a, a a big thing the ADHD side is so I'm very glad now that I know about them both yeah that makes sense it's such a battle isn't there with mm. with how your mind works it's like do the thing don't do the thing I want organization <laughs> no you don't you want to do this <laughs> yeah obsess about the thing get high on the thing get sick of the thing get rsd cry <laughs> it's a whole cycle it's wonderful it's very you know endless entertainment <laughs> yes it is i like to explain to people who don't know what rsd is that it is like rejection on steroids yes <laughs> yeah really <laughs> mm, it's um it's it's one of those really challenging things which it needs a lot of work to try and numb down in your mind and it takes persistence a lot of it does I'm actually wearing my rather nice uh anti-RSD bracelet that I treated myself to it's a little peacock and it's on a silver bracelet and I bought it for myself because I really do struggle with RSD and uh, I've had some social engagements recently where I've really suffered afterwards. And I thought, right, I want something that reminds me I struggle with RSD and that this is a thing rather than a 
what's wrong with me? You know how you go through that, what's wrong with me every time? And you're like, oh, well, it's the RSD. I want to remember I have RSD when I go into the social situation. And when I'm sat there thinking, am I enough? Am I too much? Am I interesting enough? Am I, you know, do these people really want to be with me? And I I just want to look at my wrist and be like, you can be a peacock. (laughs) You are allowed to be a peacock. And even if you're not feeling it, you're, you're still interesting. You're still a nice person. You've still got lots to offer. It's like a little reminder that my RSD is a thing. So yes, it's my little bracelet, which I'm wearing today because I'm, yeah, in the middle of it again with RSD. And uh, my clients have RSD, you know, 99% of people with autism, uh, sorry, with ADHD have RSD. And, and, and as we know with autism as well, um, it's a social and communication disorder, isn't it? So, or condition. So Mm. naturally rejection is just, but I recently realized that rejection is probably rejection, fear of rejection, fighting rejection is probably one of my main motors in life actually it's such a massive part of my life yeah it's uh, it's hard but I love that idea and I've been thinking about getting a bee as a symbol of queen bee nice being able to look at that because bees they shouldn't bumblebees should never even be able to fly so they're all because of their like body weight mass <laughs> true their wings but they don't go, oh, look, we can't fly because our wings aren't big enough and our body's too big. They just do it. <laughs> they and, just do it. And we'd be absolutely screwed without them. That's so interesting. And also, again, it's that external thing. Um, my former coach said to me, unless something is externalized, it's like it just doesn't exist and you're a divergent people. That external reminder that's meaningful to us, you know, I choose a peacock, you choose a bee. But I think it's such a thing, isn't it, to have something outside of a, the soupy, the soupiness of our head sometimes to go, no, this is a thing. This is why it hurts. Mm-hmm. It's you're allowed to have that hurt and you're allowed to recognize it and, and looking at it somehow helps you deal with it. So, yeah. Good. What are you going to get? An actual, I'm assuming not an actual bee. <laughs> no, you're not going to become a beekeeper. No, but I do know a beekeeper. So I could go and, <laughs> go and spend some Hang time with, with the him. bees. <laughs> So on the therapy side of things, mm-hmm. I know that you work with neurodifferent. I'm not going to say neurodivergent because, as we said before, yep. we, we was chatting neurodifferent. What did you say? I said neurodifferent and you said... Yeah, I said I'd seen someone on LinkedIn say neurodistinct and I really like that. Mm, I really like that too. And I just, I think divergent is a little bit... Ugh, because it makes me personally feel like a bit of a mutant. <laughs> And I'm not. It does sound a bit hard, doesn't it? It is. Divergent. But with the therapy side of things, a lot of autistic and neurodifferent people go into therapy with neurotypical individuals who are great at what they do, but they don't seem to get the results that they want because there's a mismatch because they're speaking different languages. What's your experience like with that? Oh, goodness. So I have full permission to use this anecdotal stuff, but um, actually this is a friend of mine who was seeing um, a Harley Street neurotypical therapist for years, spent, we worked out £12,000 on their sessions and it was never brought up that they were ADHD. And I met them and within 10 minutes I said, I'm really sorry to say this, and I completely understand if you don't want to be friends, 
but I think you've got a quite a raging issue with ADHD and you might want to look into it. And this started them off on a journey of self-discovery and they've had their diagnosis a few, few months ago and they are now seeing a neurodiversity coach. But I just think, how can you spend £12,000 on somebody who doesn't even mention neurodiversity when you're going for emotional support? And I think it's because it's an old school of therapist who was never, uh, you know, introduced to neurodiversity themselves. I understand how those things happen. I think we can all be out of date, but I just think that we have to have responsibility to be knowledgeable about these things. And I know that it's, you know, as a therapist, I'm there for somebody's emotional well-being. I'm not there to diagnose them. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a psychologist. Mm. But I just met this person for the first time and we're, we've now become, you know, firm friends. And I was just like, I've got to tell you this because I just feel, and I'm sorry to go into therapy mode, I just feel I have a responsibility because this person had said to me when I first met them, you know, I, I, I've got lots of mental health issues. And I thought, oh my God, who says that, you know? And then I and then I listened and I, I watched them and I was like, no, I, I really think you need to go and see someone about ADHD. And now their entire life has changed in the space of, you know, less than a year. And my own experience is I feel that neurotypical therapists and obviously as a therapist, you know, I've had a lot of therapy myself. I honestly feel that neurotypical therapists are very quick to put a lot down to lack of self-confidence or lack yeah. of self-esteem mm. or, you know, I find it's too easy. Yeah. Um, and I will say to my clients sometimes, look, I, th- I think there's 20% in there that, yes, your self-esteem could be better, your self-confidence. We can build that in a very tangible way. Because that's another thing. Self-confidence and self-esteem, I think, are dealt with in a very abstract way by neurotypical therapists. And I think neurodivergent people need very concrete ways of building those things. Yes. Um, do you know what I mean? Ways too. Simple. It's simpler and easier, the better simple easy tangible um because you know we're dealing with people who are often very bright very capable you Mm. know we all need an external pair of eyes sometimes on our stuff it doesn't matter if we work as therapists or coaches or mentors or whatever we all need external people to see us Mm. and to help us and we all get the intellectual reasons why that we're not you know if it was that easy you'd just buy a self-help book and you'd be fine wouldn't you but there's a reason self-help has its limits Exactly. All right, self-help books, they're fantastic at getting a message into your brain. They're a great starting point. They're a great, they are a great starting point. Look at different areas that you might then want to go down a rabbit hole. But if you're going to yes. go down that rabbit hole, you're much better to do that with a coach who can keep you on track and responsible or therapist who can get yes. deeper and, and get past the layers that you can't see because you're too close to it. Yes, for sure. And something that I like with you ever since I've met you, Nikki, is you often talk about your approach, which is very holistic. And so is mine. And I know that you're not afraid to bring up relationships, money, debt, what someone does for a living. I have never had therapy where somebody has said, you know, what's your spending like? Are you attached to anything legal or illegal that you're doing compulsively, whatever that is? You know, Mm. what does your day-to-day look like? Because people come in and they present a certain, you know, case. They have a presentation style. But unless you ask those questions, you know, years and years and years ago, when I was very young, I went bankrupt. I had a lot of mental health issues. And um, I went bankrupt in the high court because I was living abroad. 
And I was, I think, 1920 at the time. Very, very scary process. And, um, you know, I had loads of therapy around that time. But if one therapist had said, sorry, you're under huge mental pressure, you're under masses of uncontrollable debt. Mm. Here's the number for step change. Or, But nobody ever asked. It was seen inappropriate, I guess. It was seen as beyond the realm of therapy. But I'm sorry, how can you help anyone if you don't look at the full picture of what a person's life looks like? Exactly. And when you're talking about something as significant as money, mm-hmm. that impacts everything. If you don't have it enough, does. you are going to have, there's going to be a knock-on effect in your mental health. Yes. I had a bad experience with, with money. My ex ran up a lot of debts. We did that together. And yep. when she left, she said, oh, I would never leave you to pay all of the debts off on your own. Of course I'll pay half. <laughs> I had that for next too. <laughs> yes. And the reason I say it in that voice is, of course, she didn't help to pay off half. Sure. And I got to a point where I needed, I needed, I needed a process. So within my coaching... Yep. I teach processes. So I was at point A, which was totally overwhelmed and in too deep. And the first step was to get the phone to stop ringing. That's all I needed, that little bit of space so that people would stop ringing me and hounding me. And as an autistic person, the phone going off itself is like a hand grenade about to explode at any moment. So to have it ringing from people who wanted something from me, was a nightmare. So yeah. I put those steps into place. And within 13 months, I get debt free from almost £20,000 worth of debt. That's absolutely fantastic. But what a process it is. I remember I was with somebody who was um, basically financially controlling me. I obtained a loan for them in my name because they didn't have the credit score. They hadn't worked in something like five or six years they had chronic issues with addiction uh, and, and anger and mental health. And I wanted them to get a job. I already had three jobs. Um, I didn't need another job. I also had my self-employment plans. I had no reason to set up this business except because this person needed support. And I was left with the debt, of course. I was manipulated. I was intimidated. It was just horrific. Um, And then I was left with it. And I was with Step Change, who I have to say were fantastic, absolutely fantastic, impartial, free. My dignity was restored. I was ringing them up, telling them, oh, I'm so sorry. This is the story. And they were like, you do not need to explain yourself to us. It's not our business. We're here to support you. No judgment. And I can't recommend them enough. Um, And it was just fantastic. But I can tell you, when the final payment went out, Oh my God, because I was having to work crazy hours, get promoted as fast as possible to get higher salary, to pay it off faster so I could carry on with my own ambitions. Mm. And I felt like I was being crushed on the inside. Every single month I felt resentful. And, you know, it plays with your health if you're working too many hours. Um, And it, it was just unhealthy. And then the last payment went out and I literally felt the second it went out of my bank account, like I could breathe again. Debt is awful. And why are we not talking about it? You know, I I had um, support clients in the past. I supported them for when I first started out. And at the end of, you know, a year, they'd say, you know, doorknob syndrome. At the end of a year, they'd say, thanks for everything you've done, Sarah. By the way, I've got a terrible gambling addiction. I'm going to try and sort that out next. And ever since that, in my early days, I've always asked all the uncomfortable questions now because I'm like, 
what's the point in seeing people if you're not going to get the elephants out of the room, you know? Exactly. I, like you, I've invested over the years in therapy, mm-hmm. into mentoring, all mm-hmm. sorts of coaching things and therapy because it's another level of personal development and self-care. If, you're, if yep. you've uncovered something, so for me this year, I had to go into therapy. I didn't have to go in for long, which actually surprised me because yep. I, I gave up alcohol in January. I haven't touched a drop of alcohol for almost eight months now. I'm I'm so in admiration of that. Congratulations. I really, really think that's fantastic. Thank you. It really is. But I feel so much more balanced for it. And yep. again, it saves money. It's great. I can do other things with what I would have spent on alcohol. But I did yep. it on health as well. And I've had an unhealthy relationship with it over, over the years. I actually wrote a blog on that recently, which can be found on the website. But, okay. Um, it was... There was a point to that, and I cannot remember where I was going. What made you give up? If oh, it's not a stupid question. What made me give up? I just had enough. I just, yep. I'd, I'd done it a few times. I gave up smoking a few years ago, and this was just the next thing. And the way I did it, I thought I'd do dry January, then I'd extend yep. it dry February, March, April, and so on and so forth until I got Great. to the year. So then I knew if I can do it for the year which I'm only like a few months away from now, then I can do it for, well, forever. I don't need it. It, I've proved to myself that I don't need it. So it was was an amazing decision to make. And I'm really, really grateful that I I did that. And what was the blooming point of saying that? This is why I only work with neurodiverse neurodiverse people, (laughs) because they're like, oh, yeah, I get it. It's okay. (laughs) Yeah, no, totally, totally. But we were talking previously about money and debt and our exes kind of dropping us in it. Yeah. Don't know whether that was related. No. (laughs) (laughs) My memory is terrible. I'm well known for having a really bad memory, so I can't say anything. That's what notes are for, Sarah. That's what notes are for. (laughs) (laughs) It's all right. Like anything, if you have strategies, right? Exactly. But I I think the, the biggest... Yeah, the, the biggest bit of advice I was given when I was when I was becoming a non-drinker was to just listen to when that voice starts to say, oh, you should have a drink. And it really hasn't done that too much. Mm-hmm. Ah, that's what I was going to say. But what, yeah. just to finish this off is listen to it before it starts screaming at you. Change direction before that voice gets to a scream, because that's when you're like, all right, all right. I'm just going to go and have a drink. God, shush. Okay. What I didn't expect was all this trauma to come up that had been suppressed. By the by having a drink. By alcohol. So when I started because drinking in my people don't early drink teens, for nothing, do they? We don't do anything for nothing. So that's I'm kind of glad in a way, but I can see why that would have been a maybe a surprise. Exactly. So I started drinking in my early teens. Yeah. And I was suppressing the fact that I was being groomed. So right. Okay. Groomed. Awful. But I've dealt with it and it actually wasn't as big a deal as it, I thought it would be. Once it came up, it was so all consuming, but it was actually the just the act of it coming up to the surface for me to look at. And I actually did energy work around it rather than traditional counselling therapy. Okay, and fab. It was amazing. I saw a silent counsellor and we worked, we worked with like um really energy How cool. And it was fantastic. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. And I've, I've really moved on since then. So 
That's fantastic. I'm so pleased for you. But I think that this is what people need to understand. I know that a lot of people like a drink, but we know when we're looking forward to it that bit too much or when we're avoiding it because we feel controlled by it or or spending or sex or shopping or any sensory input. Like there's so many layers to why we have these Mm. behaviors. And one of them is numbing out. What would you say? Pain, trauma. And so, yeah. And and people are so judgmental. Exactly. It's like, um, I mean, it's not the same thing, but when I was working, uh, I did a bit of work with people who found themselves at that particular point in their lives homeless. And the layers to why people are homeless was just, you know, fascinating and terrible. But I don't think I've met somebody who is homeless, who's not had some form of abuse and certainly not who's not had any trauma or, you know, and all people see is, oh, they're probably a druggie. They're probably an alcoholic or whatever. Mm. But we just, you know, people, I'm a big believer that people don't do things without a reason. Yeah. And you have to look at the reason, not to justify. I know things like AA would say we've got to take responsibility. I get that. We've all got to take responsibility. But of all of our behavior, there's a reason to it. We've just got to be so compassionate towards ourselves, haven't we? Exactly. No one just decides, do you know what? I'm going to do this really, inverted commas, reckless thing today. Yes, And then for I'm sure. going to carry it on just for shits and giggles. Just for because sure. I really feel like wrecking my life and, and, and making it, it even in, into a bigger mess than what I currently feel that it is. So yeah, I know now the reason why I started drinking. And that's actually yep. helped me to not... I bet it has. ...go down that road again now that I know the root cause of it and as of as of like a bonus I'm starting to remember some of the good things that happened to me in my childhood so all the nice memories come up rather than all of this oh this happened so going back to like the homeless thing oh my mum kicked me out when I was 16 it was terrible yeah it was but what good came from that? I got to experience the world in a way that many 16-year-olds do not have the freedom to experience it. So you've, these lessons, although they can feel harsh at the time, they mm. do kind of like move you on to, they make you stronger. They make you who you are. They develop your character. They do. I just think, you know, the whole what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Sometimes I've kind of got issue with that. I think mm. in essence, it's true, but people need support to pull out the bits that made them stronger and to see the skills that those things gave them to help remove the shame mm. to then see it as the thing that made you stronger. Do you see what I mean? We don't seem to talk about the bit in the middle in the middle there. No, absolutely. When I started sharing my personal story, which is which isn't an easy one to share and it's not an easy one to listen to. But mm-hmm. when I first started to share it, I got to a point where I'd sort of grown past that version. Yes. And I was starting to feel, oh, when I was sharing it. So I actually went to a coach and we went through that story and we rewrote it by pulling out the bits that had got me to where I am today. So instead of focusing on those, oh God, bits. We focused on, so when I was 16, I moved out of home. Great. What did, what did you get from that? I got to experience the world in this amazing way. Um, I did go down into drugs at that point and more alcohol. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Jesus, (laughs) I can totally imagine that a person might, you know, absolutely. 
absolutely. I'm not saying it's the only thing a person does in any given situation, but I can definitely understand how somebody finds themselves there for sure. Mm. And then I can't remember how old I was in, in my 30s. I was homeless again and I was having mm-hmm. to share a room, a bed, and a bed with my nine-year-old son. So that must have been, been super triggering. Did it just remind you so much of your previous being kicked out of home kind of? Yeah. Well, it was just, yeah. it was horrible. And it, I felt so at fault and at blame for making that move and making us homeless. It felt mm-hmm. really reckless and irresponsible. But from that, I now have my own home. I, I, from the money experience, I'm debt free. I'm not on any, on any benefits. So I'm completely yep. self-sufficient. And I, yeah. I can, it's like the other day I did a client session from a hospital car park on my phone whilst my other half went in for a CT scan. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, my yeah. business is transportable. <laughs> yep. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, that's, yeah, it, it, I love being free. I love being on Zoom. That's something that, that's been life-changing for me, Yeah, being on Zoom and running a business. And people say, I do laugh about being a tree hen at times because I'm sort of locked into one hour sessions <laughs> through the day and I don't just mean I don't just mean as a as a therapist I mean in everything I do it's all on zoom um but I've definitely I've definitely learned to play to my strengths I know zoom isn't for everybody and people talk about zoom fatigue personally I've never been happier <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was it was an adjustment to start with and I did get zoom fatigue but now not so much because I know how to balance it better it's a learning curve yes it's a different way of life for people but when I think about in my last job I didn't even know how to walk into the office without getting a migraine every day every day by 12 I had a headache Mm. because I'd walk into the office and I didn't know how to navigate the social norms it was an open plan office I didn't know who to say hello to do you say hello to the ones that look up as you walk through the door? Do you go to your team and ignore everyone? Do you go round and say morning to everyone? I just didn't know how not to look arrogant or aloof or not friendly. And I was obsessed with it because I just didn't know until I told a colleague and he was like, Jesus Christ, I can't believe all that goes through your head every morning. And I was, <laughs> and after we'd had a laugh about it, it took the heat out of it. And I felt like one person in the room got it. Yeah. And I've, it, I, I really flourished in that job afterwards, but even to the point where just walking through the door was stressful. So now it's just, I just know what the rules are and I'm so in control on Zoom. I love that. Yeah, it is. You open up a meeting, you have the meeting, you close it down. You do the next thing on your list. Yes, there's no small talk. There's no, you know, when people talk to me about the workplace, the bits that worry them are not their job. The bit that worries them is why is an incentive always a social or alcohol fueled? Why is a social always standing in a communal kitchen where you don't know how to behave and you've got no privacy? Why are offices always in places where you can't go anywhere and do something completely different? Why are breaks never long enough for you to actually switch off? You know, it's never the actual content of their job that they're worried about, you know? Yeah, no, it's it's true. It's true. And open plan offices are the worst because you're so exposed. For sure. And people see privacy as something that is being entitled over the years the history if you look at privacy privacy is afforded to people who have more financial means 
Think about business class and business lounges and things that are, you know, sold at a premium. You go to a private doctor, look at the waiting room. You know, every it's associated with money. When you want privacy, it's associated with you being a bit of a princess, a bit precious, wanting to be marked apart from others. Hot desking is considered, you know, roll your sleeves up and be one of us. It's a value system that's totally different, but we get so poorly. My doctor said I was unrecognizable after four months in a call center. Yeah, it's not good. I've done call center work and I I was either, I was one of two Nickies. I was either the Nicky who was high flying, running rings around all the other, all the other colleagues, taking all the yep. calls, getting all the work done, doing amazing. Or I was yep. the Nicky who was just like, what have you done today? Yep. <laughs> yeah, no yeah, yeah. So I never worked out that balance and how to kind of just stay on a, on a level throughout it. Yeah, for sure. And I found that everything was classed as overthinking. Nothing's ever done in any depth. Everything's very reactive. Yeah. Uh, training is seen as a luxury. Diversity inclusion is seen as political correctness. It just felt like everything had to be a certain level of superficial to be acceptable um yeah really really strange environment um but I'm really happy now because what I do really comes under diversity and inclusion I love the fact that people are real on LinkedIn and they show them hot their whole selves when I was in you know my previous sector is in luxury hospitality up until I retrained and beyond because until the pandemic I wasn't full-time self-employed to be honest with you, Nikki, I don't know whether you relate to this. I've got a suspicion you might. I never wanted, I don't mean this to be offensive, but I never wanted to train and then sit in front of people one-on-one eight hours a day for the rest of my life. Because when I trained, I was 30. When I finished, I was 35. Mm. And I thought, I've got 30 years to work. I can't do that. I need creativity. I need problem solving. I need entrepreneurialism. I need business yeah. Um, so I do tend to gravitate towards the holistics with the businessy entrepreneurial side, if I'm honest. I'm completely the same. And I, I did it and it is just I couldn't maintain that because you burn out so quickly. And the only the problem is, is when you burn out, not only are you no good to yourself, but you can't mm. serve your clients either. So it is, again, about getting that balance. And I know for that sure it's so important for us. Exactly. And I know we were speaking earlier and we were talking about like rates and hourly versus package prices. And that's why I've moved over to package prices, because if I'm charging by the hour, I just I I can't do it. I'm charging for a result now. So and that means I'm not in front of as many people so I can serve the people. I can continue to do my important advocacy work, which is unpaid. And really, I love that you do advocacy. Uh huh. I I love it. I love it. But I was I was speaking to um, Jude Jude Morrow the other day, who I know you know. Yep. 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 And even he's saying you have to have a break from advocacy work from time to time because it is so heavy. It is such a heavy work being a therapist and sitting in front of people one to one for eight hours a day. It's heavy work. So at some point, there needs to be a shift or a break if you can financially afford that and it's viable for you so that mm. you can actually invest in an interest get that creative spark going again in that flair what That's is it super important like? yeah it, even if it's just getting a walk out into nature 
or writing a book or like that's what Jude's doing that's what I'm doing but mine's on autism so his isn't (laughs) he's done his (laughs) autism books (laughs) no you're right we definitely need other interests but personally I would like you know if I have therapists and coaches at times I like them to be in the real world Mm. um I and I I don't on the one hand I don't want to be offensive to somebody whose main and only income is holistic work and I know a lot of holistics are very part-time for the reasons that you've stated but personally I just think that what I do is or needs to be plugged into real life so I like to have a foot in entrepreneurialism I like to have a foot Mm. in social care I often work alongside social workers although I have to say the public sector my goodness there's a lot of money there but it's all you know it's so much of it is misspent and Mm. I mean one of my bugbears at the moment is the access to work system um, which I I do my personal view of the access to work system is we're an industrialized country it's appropriate that we have it the intention I honestly think is a good one Um, I get administratively it isn't the most complex system if you are neurotypical uh, but if you have a disability of any kind which means you would be claiming access to work this is the paradox and if you're neurodivergent it is the most awfully administered system it the delays are so long Mm. the system where they won't take wet signatures Nowadays, your coach could be 400 miles up the road from you. If you've got an employer, they also have to prove that you've had the coaching. So they have to check with the person who's had the coaching. Did you have it and get back? You know, you're signing it. The employer's signing it. The person themselves is signing it. It's Mm. all got to be printed and packaged and nobody's accepting a wet signature. So, you know, by the time you've sent it to the employer, they've sent it back. You've sent it. You've signed it you've done it. The employer's checked with the person having the coaching. You've put it in a packet to send to the person who has executive function issues, who's then got to open the post, which most people avoid because of their issues, and sign it and post it. You're talking about 25 steps. Exactly. And I actually said to my own advisor, this is making me feel ill. And I'm running a company for neurodivergent people who service neurodivergent people. And she said to me, brace yourself. She said to me, oh, I think most people would just be grateful, really. Oh, and you know something? I realize how angry that would make a lot of people, but I've been around this so much now. I, I honestly did recognize the ignorance. I'm not excusing ignorance. They are not getting trained on neurodiversity. They treat everything as if it's anxiety. So it's very, well, don't worry about it. I think that training needs to go across so many different sections of yes of systems. The systems, they're, well, they're called a system for a reason, and the majority of systems in this country and from people that I've spoken to, which is quite a few, mm-hmm. systems across most countries need to be ripped out, rebuilt, and they need to be multi-purpose. They need to fit needs of all of the people and encompass all people's needs. So instead of needing to have these reasonable adjustments and having to jump mm-hmm. through all these hoops and loops to get to them, it could be mm-hmm. like, what, what's your communication style? What's your neurotype? Are you autistic? Are you, what does that mean to you? So, yep. and then we come up with all these different things because at the moment, what I see, and I know that you'll agree with this is that people who have neurodifferences 
are the ones who are doing all of the work and neurotypicals are going, well, that's not good enough. That's not good enough. That's not good enough. And that in itself is trauma, trauma, trauma. They're not being good enough. Yeah. So we wonder why they don't have any self-confidence and you go to a therapist who's neurotypical and they don't get that because it's like, well, your experiences of the world are, it's, it's, why, why is this a problem to you? This is nothing. It's, a, it's no big deal. It is a big deal. It's, it's a really huge deal. Big. I'm actually going on a course tomorrow and I'm quite nervous about it. It's about relationships. And I'm curious to know if there's people around that see relationships in the same way as me, you know, needing somebody close in my life, but be very, very, very light touch. I mean, I literally need to see somebody twice a month and have maybe, you know, contact every couple of days, I'm perfectly happy. But who wants that apart from a married man who's having an affair? Most people want something much more sustained. They want to hang out. They want to watch TV together. They want to do the shops. They want to move in together. They Most people see that. So anyway, so I'm going on this course and I'm nervous and I've spoken to them and they seem lovely and mm-hmm. they put a lot down to things like trauma. And I think, yeah, okay, you know, I've I've had trauma. I've had neglect. I've Yes. Okay. I understand the whole argument that, you know, you, you go for people that might not be available maybe because, uh, you know, you might not think you're worthy or you're used to vying for attention maybe, but it's the biggest thing for me is I go for people without masses of availability for a relationship because that's what I enjoy and what I can cope with. That is the neurodiversity. And I'm just a bit worried that I'm going to spend 12 hours in a room tomorrow being told that it's all trauma when I'm like, no, autistic you have no idea how I love living in my head and I don't want someone around (laughs) and then I've got friends of mine go oh well and I'm thinking well you know I could draw parallels between all of my friends relationship I'm not saying that they're all vanilla or they're all the same or that they're not special like me or I'm not it's not about that I'm just saying there is a normal and I'm not it please stop saying there's no normal because there blatantly is whole institutions the benefit system every the tax system is based on a normal Yes. The marriage and civil ceremony system, the you know, the way that people process things like sexuality and procreation, it is based on a common perception of normal. Let's stop saying, oh, there's no such thing as normal. Just do your thing. Because the fact that everyone is doing something that, broadly speaking, is similar means it's very hard to meet someone who doesn't want that. So, exactly. So, yeah. I tell you what normal <laughs> is. Normal is absolutely terrifying. <laughs> When I was was going on to dating apps way back, there was an actual section. What, how would you describe yourself? Normal or weird? And someone had put normal and I literally kind of shut the laptop lid down ever so slowly while backing away, kind of going, oh my God, who aspires to be normal? What is this sorcery? It's like, no. It terrifies me. I know. And I feel the pressure. If I can't just go off and be alone all the time, I feel the pressure, you know. Mm. And the minute I'd met someone, we'd had a few dates, which I love because I like dinner. I like wine. I like intelligent conversation. I like sitting across from somebody who's nice looking and going, oh my God, this is a great Friday night. What I don't want six, seven, eight dates in is the, oh, well, obviously we'll stop doing that now because we're sort of seeing each other and shall we just sort of see each other after work a bit and then, oh, obviously we'll spend the weekend together. And you know that trip you're planning, obviously we'll do that together, right? You know that holiday you're planning, well, obviously in future that will be together. Oh my God, you know, and before you know it, you're having to get food together. You're having to, 
do stuff together just not because everyone mm. is a homogenous lump of vanilla i'm not saying that i'm just saying that the way that life is we have limited time we all have to eat we'll have to sleep we'll have to work naturally you fall in step with someone but that makes me it makes yeah. me want to curl up and die if i'm honest i literally <laughs> feel like i've got nothing to look forward to in life <laughs> it's that dramatic well, me and my other half have been together over two years now. We just had a lovely weekend in Oxford and it was just wonderful. Just the two of us, nice food. Stick. Uh, yeah, I went to see Joe Lysett. That was awesome. He was awesome. And you have to you have to keep doing these things in order to keep that spark there. And when you stop, that's when the, the rot sets in. You have to have your secret garden, as it were. Totally. But I can see why people go off each other after the familiarity sets in. And then I just know, yeah, I don't know. I think maybe that don't want normal, but that's all they think have. But yeah, we we do need to normalize that relationships can be, uh, they can be platonic, they can be sexual, they can be short-term, long-term, intense, light touch. We need a lot more variety in our representation of relationships, I think. Absolutely. And that comes down as, as well. I know we I'm doing a series this month on my blog for LGBTQ plus to just yep. get out some of those taboos and just talk about it because it's not talked about enough. I know that we've had a huge movement with like LGBTQ plus rights, but you've got other sort of people under that umbrella who are still very much on the outskirts and they are, it's it's horrible the way that people are treated. The way mm-hmm. I see people is that you can be anything. If you're mm-hmm. an arsehole, I don't want to know you. If you're nice, then great, bring it on. Let's get to know each other and be friends and see where that relationship goes. That I don't care who you're sleeping with. I don't care how you identify yeah, I don't care. It's none of my business. All that matters to me is that you are a nice person and that you are happy and all of that jazz. You think of a straight couple, you think of them doing all kinds of things together. When people think of a gay couple, they tend to just automatically think about sex and, well, how does that work? And who's the man or who's the woman oh, or yeah. which one's the feminine one? Because we're so polarized and, you know, and, and we don't seem to ever just the gay couple that you know, they need to get fit in. They need to have a job. They We don't normalise the gay experience. And, I mean, I'm bi, as you know, and we get treated very strangely because, again, because of polarities. I've tried to be gay. I came out once and went back in and came out again. <laughs> I've not sure met anyone who can say that, but I have been that person. I came out when I was 16. I went back in for a while. Then I was I was in a lesbian relationship. I thought, right, maybe I'm lesbian. I thought, no, I'm not lesbian. I am bi. I'm both. I remember fancying both from the age of three. I fancied both of my neighbours, one boy and one girl, when I was three years old. <laughs> <laughs> and I've never changed. <laughs> I love it. And that's why I think as well, people say, oh, a child is too young to understand what their preferences are. That is, that again, is myth. It's total, oh my goodness me, I definitely, you know, you know what you're attracted to, um, 
Yeah, I, I don't think, you know, I don't, I don't think that there's no uh, external social sort of validation. I think that, you know, if you're in a family, if you're in a family that's very anti-homosexual, you are probably going to try your damnedest not to be homosexual for at least a part of your life. That's what happened to my partner. She came out at 40 and has no contact wow. with her mum now, who is very homophobic. So it's how unnecessary. Wow. And in that time, wow. she was in a 20-year relationship with a man that, well, that, that should never have happened, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very mm. difficult, isn't it? Um, yeah, I know lots of people who have been identified as a certain way just because they had to, generally, a homophobic parent. Mm. Uh, you know, it's this assumption, isn't it, that we're all, that we're all um, heterosexual until proven otherwise. Um, yeah, it's it's not really the right baseline. It's not the right starting point, is it? No. Same with, uh, I won't go into um, this for too much. Um, one, because it's really not my topic of expertise, but it's like trans individuals as well. To say to someone mm-hmm. who says, I am trapped in this female or male body, I am not yeah. this gender. Yeah. They're not lying. They're not making it up. This is something that needs to be taken seriously, even if they are little and young. It needs to be looked at much more seriously, but it's too easily dismissed, and that's wrong. One of the assumptions I really dislike, yeah, is that people are attention-seeking in in any kind of statistical difference that they, you know, um, relate to and identify with. And I statistical difference, because, yes, I don't think the majority of the population is a or neurodivergent i know that we are in minority populations Mm. um but that yeah that doesn't make it less true or less valid um and our experience has to matter because you can't live without representation then there's so our representation is still at such a basic level isn't it it really is it just makes me so sad and cross sometimes that we need these different fractions. So Black Lives Matter and gay rights and autistic sort of movements and neurodivergent sort of movements and all of these different things. It should just come down to the one simple fact that we are all born equal. Let's keep it that way. It doesn't matter who we are, what who we're born into, where we're from, our gender, our colour, anything. It should just be that we are all humans and we all deserve the same respect and opportunities as, well, as everybody. I think the problem we have today is that there's such a legacy of how badly people in minority populations have been treated Mm. that now we're in that phase of dating trying to repair trying to understand how that was ever they do think at some point we're going to move to a phase where we start celebrating how similar we all are i think that's going to be the next kind of chapter Mm. i hope so i hope so and i hope that we get there in our lifetime rather than years and years yes so do i Mm. (laughs) so are there any (laughs) projects that you are currently working on sarah 
Oh my goodness. Uh, how do I keep that brief? The moment uh, I am spending a lot of time in our virtual assistant service because it's gone through the roof. My coaching and, and, and therapy is, is always an ongoing and that is my main skill set. So I, I make sure that I, I see uh, up to 12 clients a week. Awesome. Awesome. And where can people find you, Sarah? Uh, we actually get most of our uh, work and engagement on LinkedIn um, and also wireddifferently.co.uk is our website. Brilliant. Well, I will put that into the show notes as well, along with a full transcript of our conversation. And I'll let you know when that is going to be going live. So you know when to listen and share across your own audiences, which is cool. I will do. Thank you so much. It's been really enjoyable. Yeah, thank you for joining me today and thank you for giving up your valuable time. It is always appreciated. And as always, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. And you. Thanks. And for our listeners, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you never have to miss an episode again. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast with Nikki Collins. Artists.